Welcome to Next Steps, the midweek podcast from Blackhawk Church. Over the course of the 10 weeks that we are in our Rooted series, we're going to be responding to your questions about the message from Sunday or other questions related to the topic that was covered. Uh, If you didn't get a chance to check out this past weekend's message from Pastor Charles, it was a really good one. You can find that on this same podcast channel or watch online at blackhawkchurch.org. So with that, uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm going to be helping to host today. And with me is Pastor Charles Yu and Pastor Lynn Beenick. So are you guys ready to jump into to some of these questions? We're just going to go for it. We're ready. All right. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thank you to everyone that submitted questions. Again, uh, we had quite the response this week, a ton of questions sent in. Uh, and a lot of them um, kind of fell along similar themes. So we're going to try to uh, hit on as many of those as we can, but we're going to jump right in uh, for the sake of time and just get to it. So uh, Charles, on, on Sunday, you gave us this message about um, scripture and went through some of the the evangelical free church's doctrinal statement about what we believe about the Bible. And so we're going to, over the course of the next few minutes, kind of dig into a few of the things that you talked about and define them further. But one of the things that many people asked about is that what does it mean that the scriptures are verbally inspired? That's part of the doctrinal statement. So yeah, yeah, what would you guys say to help clarify that a little bit more? Uh, so good question. I, th- I think I think the the word verbally is the critical word there because I think people think oh inspired. You're talking about the author. The person is, you know, directly hearing from God. They're like you know God's telling them what to say and all that kind of stuff. And I think the word phrase verbally inspired is really trying to specify when we talk about inspiration, we're talking about the words are being inst- are inspired. The author could just be writing and whatever he or she is thinking about and is writing it for a particular purpose but it's the words that are inspired. So it wasn't necessarily an audible voice that people were hearing. Well, sometimes they were, right? I mean, Some of the prophets are going, oh, thus saith the Lord, they're hearing something. But most of the time, the authors are just writing. Paul's just writing letters. And he's writing letters to certain churches, answering certain, certain issues, but he's not actually thinking that, oh, I'm writing the Bible right now. And yet, what we believe is that some of these letters, some of these writings, God's like, you know what? This is this is precisely what what I what what I want to have written. Yeah. So follow-up question. It's also not like in the Disney movies where like, you know, some magical power takes control of the hand and the writing on the wall. <laughs> God's not physically grabbing their wrist or their pen and writing no. exact words. No, we don't believe that. Um so there is something called the dictation theory of inspiration in which you're you're kind of cha- you're being you're channeling God as you're writing and you're going to you know God's taken over and the and I go, I don't know what I've written that so that is not what we believe we believe mm-hmm. that these writing are fully human fully fully co- the humans are fully cognizant of what they're writing and what they're choosing to write we just believe that God has the ability to create the situation and the person to write precisely what he wants communicated yeah that's helpful. I'm going to um, press into that a little bit more, maybe maybe push back just a little bit, because we also talk about how in the statement it says that um, these writings are through human authors. So in one sense, we're saying that God inspired these words, but we're also saying that God works through human authors and their humanness and their cultural context. So uh, yeah, talk more about that, that tension. What do, we, what do we do with that? 
Yeah, I think that the fact that we have human authors is actually one of the best parts about reading the Bible is that we get to hear these distinctly different voices. It's not the same voice all throughout narrative in terms of how you read it, um, which makes for an interesting read and experience of getting to know the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I agree. And, and, and one of the things that, you know, I think people, they think the Bible should be something different. They think that if God's writing this, it should have kind of a divine voice. And I'm like, how do you actually have a divine voice? I mean, I think about languages that are that are not that are not contextual. Okay, the only ones I can come up with is like you know either computer science programming language or maybe like math <laughs> mathematics. All right, and I sorry about this. I mean, apologies to mathematicians, but when I look at the equation, I'm not moved. Okay, but when you're talking about writing, especially writing that is powerful, that is designed to change lives, that hits you not just in the head but in your heart, in your gut. Those have to be heavily, heavily contextualized. They have to be really designed by somebody who knows the culture and be writing directly to the people of that culture. And so that's what God chooses to do. He says, I'm going to speak through these people to that particular group of people, and then I'm going to use this product and gather with all these other writing from different places and pull it together as one set and give it to the rest of humanity and say, hey, here it is. This is what I want to communicate. And you need to figure out not just the words, but the author and the audience and the history and understand all of that to get what I'm trying to tell you. Mm. Wow. It's kind of nutty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Bible's more complex than we give it credit for. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe just to go one, one level deeper before we, we move on from this question. But so God uses these human authors who are situated in a particular culture um, so as we sit here in 2021, we view things through a certain lens from the culture that we've grown up in, that we live in. Um, and there's probably ways that our culture doesn't understand God in the way that he should be understood. So are there ever times in scripture where because of the humanness of the authors, because of the culture that they're set in, that the ways that they write about God are actually wrong, that they've misunderstood his character or attributed actions or things to him that were more maybe not actually from God himself. What, what do you think about that? Ooh, that's a good question. Lenny, you want to give that a shot? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that one thing that we know is that God is all-powerful and he's all-knowing. He's in control. And these characteristics are true of him, and it's true of his word as well. And so while different people interpreted events and, and wrote them, as we were just saying, I, I believe that we can trust that these are true. Truly, it's the message that God wants us to have today, mm -hmm. to understand him and what he wants to teach us. Yeah. And I, I, think that's, I think that's, I think you're getting, I mean, that's exactly it. There's a, people write about God all the time throughout history. And everybody's writing in context, in, in their historical context. And a lot of them are wrong about mm -hmm. God, who God is. And so what we're getting at is that our faith commitment is that this set of books together communicate a whole view of God. I'm not saying every book mm, that's good captures God perfectly. Because you have people in the, in the Old Testament, there are books in the Old Testament. For example, the book, book of Job is a great example. The book of Job captures multiple perspectives about God. And it tells you that, you know, one of them is right, the other ones are wrong. Okay, and I would say, you know, the Old Testament writers—they probably don't know fully who Jesus is. Mm. So there's, there's an incompleteness to, to, to what's going on to the, to the authors. I, I, I would say Moses does not know. Oh, if there's going to be a Jesus, he's going to do all this. No, no, he doesn't have the full picture of what God is up to. 
But when the when what he's written, inspired by God, it's when, when the New Testament and other later writings come in, the whole picture mm-hmm. gives us gives us the, the, the entire revelation. And so that's that's an exciting part of this as as, as well. So um, yeah, we're not saying every biblical author knew everything. Mm-hmm. Okay, we believe. I don't know if it's in the in the book of uh, the, even uh, in our in our statement of faith, but we also believe in what is known as progressive revelation. That God gradually reveals more and more of Himself throughout history as the salvation history gets is unfolded. Mm, that's good. And it's such a great reason to consider doing like a reading the Bible in a year plan or something like that, because as we read books on their own when they're isolated, we can learn from that a lot. But actually, when you read the whole story in context, that's really when the story starts to come alive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. that's really helpful, you guys. Uh, all right, so moving on, uh, another question that people had about the doctrinal statement, and a, a ton of people um, asked a question along these lines too, is this, is what is the justification for the idea that the Bible is without error? And what does it mean that the scriptures are without error in the original writings? Can you guys speak to that? Um, I think that's two different questions. Let me start with the first one. Why do we believe that the Bible is without error. Uh, so one of the great challenges is that the moment you start talking about what is an error, people have different understanding. And so the temptation to then make the Bible fit our understanding becomes almost irresistible. Well, if the Bible is wrong about certain things, then, well, here, here's some area I disagree with the Bible. Well, the Bible must be wrong about that. And so the, the belief that the Bible is without error is really an act of submission. It's an act of love. It says, okay, we love God, and here's a writing that, that's, been, that's been given to us that we believe is, is His Word. Okay, let's begin by respecting that. But I do want to clarify what without error means from, from the uh, EFCA statement of faith. Uh, the way they would define it is, uh, the Bible is true in all that it teaches. Okay. True in all that it teaches. So, so what is it that the Bible is teaching, I think is the question. That's a great point, Charles. Can you say more about that? Like, what is an example of right. something in the text where, okay, somebody said something that's actually maybe not true, yeah, yeah, but yeah. maybe they didn't intend to teach what we think they're trying to teach? Right. I mean, I think the example that people bring up a lot is Jesus, right? Jesus, I think using using his example of, a, of a, the parable, talks about, oh, the mustard seed being the smallest of all seeds. And you're like, okay, we got scientists out there who are no, 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 no. This mustard seed is not the smallest of all seeds. <laughs> Jesus is wrong. The Bible is wrong. There's an error. And I'm like, uh, I think you're missing the point, right? Is, is, was Jesus trying to teach biology? Was he trying to establish the fact that mustard seed was the smallest seed possible? Or was, it simply, was he simply assuming the cultural context of his day, which his listeners all thought, Oh, the mustard seed is the smallest seed. So he's using that as an example to teach something else. I think, I think when we misunderstand statements, we, we make these kind of mistakes. We, we th- what we think are errors are not errors. I, I mean, my example would be if I say to my wife, Serena, ah, oh, you know, the, 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 sun, the, the sunset looks so beautiful on your hair. And she looks at me and she says, Charles, you're an idiot. The sun does not set. The earth rotates. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you see, you see, that would be what we're talking about right now. We're just talking about miscommunication here. Yeah. That's good. 
Um, so follow-up question to that is the original writings piece. What do we mean that the scriptures are without error in the original writings? Yeah, uh, two level on that one. One is that um, we have translations. Uh, the Bible is originally written in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And today we read English translations. And we have a lot of different translations. So we absolutely argue that um, our exegesis, our work of figuring out what the Bible is trying to say, we do it in the original language. So that's the first level. Yeah, and I, I know that people you know, are uncomfortable with um, what I did on Sunday because I, I, I said <laughs> someone cross out the word law and put in writing or teaching, right? I did that. And, and um, so let me, I, I just want to make that clear because I think, first of all, um, people who translate for the NIV and for all these major um, English translations, there's a committee of scholars, biblical scholars. They, they know way more than I do about the text, about the grammar, about everything else. They know everything I just said. I said on, on a Sunday. It's not like they did it in error, okay? But they have reasons for doing what they're doing. And, and, they, and, and um, so in, in, in the example of Psalm 1, the word law there, um, the original uh, a Hebrew was Torah. It was translated into namas, into Greek. So that was the original, that was a translation background 200 years before Jesus. The Septuagint made that decision to translate Torah into namas. Namas, the Greek word, comes into English very easily as law. So to a certain extent, our English translators are trapped by this decision made by the Greek translators 200 years before Jesus. And so the English translators have gone with law for so many hundreds of years now, I think it's rather difficult for them, um, given that they're translating for, you know, for a Bible for churches to use in reading, you cannot make drastic changes. So there's, there's tradition that you have to take into account. So they are not making a mistake. They know exactly what they're doing. And they have to balance a whole bunch of different things. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, we were looking at this earlier. Um, when a newer or when a newer translation comes along, um, they oftentimes are, you know, they don't maybe have to hold to years of tradition of previously publishing that particular translation, and so they have a little more freedom to translate in a way that is accurate with our current cultural context. Not just accurate with the scriptures; they're all. Um, doing a good job of being accurate with with the original text, but like so, for example, the Christian Standard Bible we were looking at earlier translates you 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 changed law into teaching. teaching they yeah. they did instruction, so they actually make that change. They're mm -hmm. they're a newer translation. Um, so depending on what you're looking at, um, yeah, yeah. They, they might be able to to make more of a modern change and put it into language that is more kind of in our cultural context. Right. So one of the advice you know we always give to people is if you want to. You know, if you want to read a Bible because you want to do it devotionally, you know, almost any Bible works fine. Every Bible is great. But if you really want to get precise and do, you know, do Bible study, uh, use multiple versions. Yeah. I mean, you're not trapped with one Bible. You do an do an NIV. Do a do a do a message. Uh, do do a do a ESV. Try try different ones out. If they all agree with each other, you go okay. I'm pretty sure I know what's going on there. <laughs> if they're dis if they're disagreeing with each other. They're, they're, okay, they're not wrong. They're just making different decisions. Now you can go, okay, I need to look that up. So yeah. having different trans English translations in your hand is a great way to get you to dig deeper about what the text is actually saying. Yeah. Lynn, do you have a, a translation that you prefer when you're studying or, or reading? Well, I, I typically read the NIV, but when I'm studying, I like to use the ESV. And as you were saying, Charles, I, I like to cross 
you know, kind of examine and look at different translations. And also just back to what you were saying earlier, Charles, I think it's a great way to consider what was actually intended. Like what was the message that was being taught? Okay, a slight word, you know, difference doesn't change the actual teaching. And so to be looking for that, I think is a really great tip. Yeah, yeah that's good. Uh, yeah, these are all really good questions, you guys, about um, these parts of the doctrinal statement. Uh, there are volumes and volumes of books written on these things in entire seminary classes, so it's hard to do it justice in just a few minutes. We did uh, post a few resources on the website, um, some Bible Project videos and some books that dig further into some of these conversations about um, the Bible and how it came to be and all that kind of stuff, so check that out. Um, well, on Sunday, uh, Charles, you talked about how it's kind of expected that we'll disagree with parts of the Bible, but to not let that keep us from following Jesus, uh, kind of in a sense, we have to learn to live with that tension. So Beth asks, are we to keep following Jesus because we trust that the wrongness is on our side and with our understanding and not that God is unjust or he's not good? Uh, basically, how can we trust that God is good when we disagree with the ways that he works in Scripture? How, how do you guys work through that in, in your own lives? Oof. Well, Beth, <laughs> we're with you that there are actually a lot of things that are difficult to understand in the Bible. And there are things that all of us read and see. And I think it's, if we're being honest, we we don't understand it. We object to some of the things that we read. And I think that those are some of the very issues that can at times feel tempting if it's something that doesn't make sense to us or we disagree. It can be tempting to think, well, maybe that's an error or maybe that's, maybe that's, maybe it's not what I'm actually reading. Have you ever experienced that, Charles? I mean, I mean yeah. I mean, look, this is just, this is just a reality. I mean, I, I said it Sunday, I'll say it again. If you're reading the whole Bible, I mean, look, if you just limit yourself to the parts you like, okay, you're going to agree with everything. If you're reading the whole Bible, you're going to run into problems. You're just going to run into things. You're going, really? That's what God does? you got to be kidding me. I mean, the example that, you know, I think this, let me just point out, this is an absolute reality in, in the Bible. God treats people as a collective. Okay, let me, let me clarify about that. When it comes to individual self, salvation, eternal, eternal destiny, God treats people as individuals. But when it comes to dealing with them here in this world, in history, God deals with people in groups, families, um, communities, cities, nations, people groups. That absolutely is the case. There is absolutely collective sin, collective guilt, collective punishment. That's, that's in the Bible. And you, can, you might just disagree with God and he says, no, 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 that's wrong, God. That's unjust. And you can define and call God out for being unjust. Um, I think God's just going to say, you know what? I think I disagree with you on your definition of justice. Hmm. Right, because it, it makes us uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very uncomfortable. Well, well, part of this is because we're such, we're such individualistic society. And so this is where when you see, okay, so this is, that's exactly it. When we read the Bible and we hear something that makes us uncomfortable, the next move is, whoa, okay, I see it this way, he sees it that way, and that makes me question my presuppositions. My understanding of justice is individual. I should be judged purely based on what I've done. And God's like, no, I'm going to, things are going to happen to you based on what your community has, has done. And, and, and you're going to go, oh. And, and he's going to go, see, see, because the individualistic approach gets you off the hook for not dealing with an unjust society. You, if you live in an unjust society, you could, you could just say, well, I'm not, part, I'm not participating in it. 
and therefore let it go, and, and people are doing wrong things. We're like, oh, I'm, I'm over here, I'm just fine, and I shouldn't be punished for it. And God's like, no, I don't think so. You need to go out and, 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 and do justly and love mercy, mm-hmm. right? Establish justice in our community because there is such a thing as a collective guilt. Yeah. And I think something that I know here at Blackhawk is a huge value and part of just our culture. It comes out in our teachings and our life groups and discussions. It's just this emphasis on the fact that it's okay to disagree. <laughs> and actually, we want you to be able to express that in an open space, the things that are unsettling to you. Mm-hmm. I think that, Charles, you touched on this on Sunday in your message, that we can start to pretend, oh, I just agree with all of it. <laughs> or we can actually start to believe the Bible is saying simply what we want it to say, and both are actually a problem. And so what we would encourage anyone listening to do with with the things that you're struggling with or that you're reading and you don't agree with, please don't feel like you have to hide that. Please don't feel like you need to just put on a smile and act like you agree with it all, because actually none of us do. (laughs) There are things that all of us struggle with, and those are things we can bring to God, and it makes it a real relationship, in fact, when we do. Right. I mean, I mean, that's just it. I think, I think we're speaking to two groups of people here. You're, you have one group who are like, I have things I disagree with. What do I do? And we're saying, hey, that's normal. Don't worry. That's, that's how most people deal with things. Then you have people who are like, oh, no, I love everything to the Bible. And I'm like, okay, now, wait a minute. Are you sure about this? I mean, okay, I, I, I'll just give you this example. I mean, okay, so you guys probably heard of Jeffrey Dahmer. He was this infamous uh, serial killer mm-hmm. in, from Milwaukee, right? Milwaukee yes. area. Yep. He actually, okay, so this is like rated PG-13. <laughs> he, he, if you didn't know, he, he, ate, kids. he ate his victims. Okay. Now, story has it, and I'm, I'm not saying this is absolutely true, but the story that came out while he was in prison that he became a Christ follower. Okay. So here is our understanding of grace. And we all love grace. We think grace is awesome. We sing about it. We sing about grace. <laughs> we, we praise God about grace. Here's, here's the reality of grace, is that if the story is true, then Jeffrey Dahmer will be in the kingdom of God, eternal life in heaven, and maybe some of his victims will not be. How do you feel about that? Do you have a problem with that? Okay. Even the most foundational concept of Christianity, grace, it's deeply jarring and discomforting for us. There's major, major problems. We're going to have major problems with it. And that's going to make you question all kinds of things that you bring to the table when you start struggling with these concepts. So I know that the, the end goal isn't, oh, God's no good and God's not just, because that's not where we're going. Okay? We see what God has done. We go, God is, God is good. I just don't fully understand his definition of goodness. God is just. I just, I'm not sure I entirely agree with his definition of justice. Mm -hmm. And that grace thing sure sounds good when it's applied to me, but oh my gosh, when it's applied to somebody who I don't think deserve it, oh, I don't like it one bit. And it seems like in, in what you're talking about, Charles, so much of this goes back to the fact that God's ways are just so much higher above our ways that we we can't understand. We we're incapable of understanding everything that God knows and why he has made things the way he has. And that's actually a good thing. Like it's a good thing that we are not the the ones creating the story and we are not the ones determining what's right and what's true. Right. Because we our minds and our ways are not as high as his. I think that's a great posture. There's, there's a posture of recognizing that we're, we're human beings and God's God. Um, but we get back to the original point. Even that, given that, feel free to disagree. 
feel free to, to engage with God. Engage with somebody you know is bigger than you, who knows more than you do, infinite wisdom and power, and engage with him and see what he comes up with. See, see how he resolves it for you. And, and this is where we're assuming something here, okay? If your relationship with God is one of, it's distant, it's very intellectual, it's, it's, I'm understanding God merely through theology, then what I've just said doesn't make any, doesn't make any sense. But if you're actually involved in a relationship of knowing and learning and growing and where, where God's telling you things, you're telling him back, and you're like, I don't think that makes sense, God. And he's like, well, why don't you think about this? If you're having those kind of relationships with God, then what I said makes more sense. Give God the time. Mm. Um, give God a decade or two to help you figure out all the areas in which you're disagreeing with him about. Yeah, he actually uses our doubt and our questions and tensions to draw us closer to himself and to, to grow in, in intimacy in that relationship. Absolutely. Well, that's all for this week. Thanks for tuning into this Rooted uh, question and response episode on the podcast. Join us for worship online or in person on Sunday, and then we'll see you back here next Wednesday to respond to another round of questions. Have a great week.